I want to turn our attention to why Jesus was always talking about plants. I know it doesn't sound that dramatic of a, of a title, um, but it's based in reality that Jesus was always talking about plants. Seeds, soil, sunshine, planting, harvesting. He was stuck on this agricultural motif. Why was he always talking about plants and what on earth does that have to do with me and my work for him today? Well, that's the burden of our talk this evening. But before we study anything from God's word, what do we need to do first? Please bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you and I thank you for life at all and thank you so much that we can all be here together as we welcome in these precious Sabbath hours. Thank you for the songs that we've heard. Thank you that we've been able to fellowship and praise together. And now, Lord, we're going to turn our attention to a study of your word. And we want to understand it. And more than understand it, Lord, we don't just merely want to have a, an intellectual grasp of the concepts, but Lord, we would ask that through your Holy Spirit's power that you would sharpen that word and cut us to the heart. Let us be convicted of our need for you and your need for our work for you. Lord, make us faithful and useful. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why Jesus was always talking about plants. Now, while Jesus' parables referred to everyday matters like tending sheep and catching fish and saving money, far and away his stories most often revolved around or based on the agricultural cycle. He was always talking about plants. Why was Jesus always talking about plants? Where did he get this idea? Well, it comes from, I believe, Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, opens with these words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now we're probably, I'm guessing that most people in this room are familiar with that passage, but not familiar with it from Isaiah. Most of us probably know it from the New Testament when Jesus himself referred to it, in fact, quoted it directly, read it, in fact, in church one Sabbath. You can find that story in Luke chapter 4. It says here, and this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had just won hand-to-hand -hand combat with the devil, and he shows up at his home church of Nazareth. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. I cannot emphasize that enough. Jesus grew up in the church and he stayed. Now, this is, this is a little aside. I always have to interject this idea because I know at this age group people feel like sometimes disenfranchised from the church or distanced from it or maybe looked down upon or something like that. Nobody had it worse in church than Jesus. He would go to church and people would literally try to kill him. But you know what he did next Sabbath? Went back to church. Why? Because that's just what you do. It's a Sabbath day. The Old Testament says it's a day of holy convocation. It's a time for the gathering of God's people together. So as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And I like to add this. And stood up to do what? To read. Not only did Christ attend church, he participated in church. He was an active, involved member of the local congregation, and he went back home. 
and it was his turn to read, or maybe he had a special guest reading. I'm not sure how it was, but it says in the verse here that he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, of course, you were probably aware, but the Bible was not in codex form. The Old Testament didn't have a Genesis, and then the next page was Exodus, and then Leviticus. No, it didn't work like that. Each book was its own book, and by book we mean scroll, right? And there were no chapter and verse delineations and demarcations. It was the one book all together from the prophet Isaiah. And so on this Sabbath day, he's handed the book of Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Notice he doesn't just open up arbitrarily and read like a scripture reading for the day. He's looking for something specific in the book of Isaiah. It says here he opened it up, he finds the place where it was, and I like to imagine it might have taken a minute. No? There's no chapter, no, no page, no, you just have to find it. And he looks and he's like, ah, there it is, that's what I was looking for. And he quotes, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He quoted from what we now refer to as Isaiah chapter 61. And then he added, now notice this was not just a random scripture reading. I want to emphasize this again. Christ found it. The Bible doesn't say if he requested the book or it was just the daily reading, but I like to imagine he says, you know what? I need to read from Isaiah today. Could you bring me Isaiah? And he's looking for something. Aha, there it is. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's written in first person and he delivers it like he's that person. And then to remove all doubt or question as to his meaning, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. As if to say, enough said. Right? <laughs> but it wasn't enough said. And all the eyes who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, I don't know if they've heard the story of the anointing through baptism at the River Jordan and the dove and the voice from heaven. And then his mysterious time away, and he come back emaciated and frail, yet victorious over Satan. John the Baptist saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. But there's a stir in the room. That when Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he means me. And, all the, eye, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture is what? Fulfilled in your hearing. It's almost as if to say, I know what you're thinking. Yes. <laughs> that is me. Jesus saw in Isaiah 61 his personal mission statement. He could look at that and say, that first person, me, that Isaiah was writing for is actually this person, me. God has anointed me to preach the gospel and to do these works of beneficence, of benevolence, of good deeds. In fact, it was that same chapter when John the Baptist had his doubts about Jesus' ministry. You remember John was languishing in prison. And he even was shaken. Is this Jesus who's out gallivanting with sinners? 
the Messiah, and he sends two men to ask him the question. And Jesus doesn't turn around, if you recall from an earlier message, he doesn't turn around and say, tell John, yes, I'm the Messiah. What does he do? From that moment, he began healing and doing all kinds of good works. Then he says, now go tell John the things that you have seen and heard. And he starts quoting from Isaiah 61. Jesus clearly saw that his ministry mandate, his mission statement, was found in this chapter. Okay? This was his work. Now, why do I emphasize that so much? Because typically, this is where we stop from quoting Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 is not that long. It's only 11 verses long. In the first couple of verses, Christ reads and then explains, I am the guy from Isaiah 61. But I want you to bring you back now to Isaiah 61, and we're going to look at the closing statement of Isaiah 61. It's found in verse 11. And it helps unravel the mystery of why Jesus was always talking about plants. The closing verse of Isaiah 61, For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so, or in the same way, or in like manner, the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. So notice Christ says, I am the one who am anointed to preach this gospel and to do this work, and after me this whole gospel will go to all the world. In fact, didn't Jesus say that in Matthew chapter 24? And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all the world as a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. There's prophecy after prophecy in the Old and New Testament that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth. But it wasn't going to happen by Jesus alone. Jesus' public ministry was only three and a half years. What he did was come and model it, give us a mandate, and say, go. In fact, Jesus would say, the works that I do, greater works will you do. Right? And this is the template of how it's going to work. As the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so, or in the same way, the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Jesus talked about plants, seeds, soil, crops, and harvest, and other such agricultural metaphors, because it was part of his prophetic mission statement. This is what I'm supposed to do according to God's word, and I need to teach these principles before I leave. A spiritual process akin to the agricultural cycle is how God intends the knowledge of his righteousness to spread throughout the earth. The Bible makes that clear. As the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown into grow, so will the righteousness be spread throughout the earth. Thus we get to what our premise is for this evening. Just as, or in the same way, the agricultural cycle includes... Five distinct steps, and if you are one of those note-taking, diligent students of the Word, good for you. What we're going to be doing tonight is simply walking through the five steps or five phases of the, not agricultural cycle, but the evangelistic cycle of winning souls for Jesus Christ. Okay? Includes soil preparation, seed planting or seed sowing, and the cultivation of harvest, and preservation of the crop. In the cycle of evangelism, these sequential steps are essential for true success in reaching people. 
Christ wanted us to understand this agricultural cycle because it is the process by which the evangelistic cycle would also operate. Okay, is that making sense? Let's go forward. The first step in the evangelism cycle is to prepare the soil of the heart. If you want to win souls for Christ, the first thing you've got to do is reach their heart. Okay? Building friendship and trust opens the heart for the reception of truth. You build a bridge with yourself to their heart. We do this by drawing close to people through being kind, intentionally social, and ministering to practical needs. Now, Jesus had an entire parable about this, and we find it in Luke chapter 8. Now, it's a longer parable, so I don't have the whole thing on the screen, so you're going to have to crack open those pages tonight. Luke chapter 8, and we'll start with verse 5. I'll start with verse 4, why not? And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. So clearly this is not just a private conversation. He's telling this to everyone. And he says in verse 5, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it out. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he said these things, he cried, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the parable is very simple. There's a sower with seed, sowing that seed. And it lands on different types of soil. Rocky, thorny, and of course, good soil. Now he explains it just a few verses later in verse 11. Notice his explanation. Now the parable is this. He's going to decode it for us. The seed is the what? The word of God. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones. So notice that the, the landing spot of the seed represents different types of people, right? Okay. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So they hear it, and as soon as that conviction starts, the devil comes and sweeps it away, and they walk away, and that's it. they have no commitment to Christ whatsoever. They just hear it, dismiss it, and go on. Verse 13, but the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. So these, unlike the others, actually do receive it in their heart. They have a great mountaintop experience, a spiritual high. They make proclamations and declarations of their loyalty to Christ. But as soon as times get hard, which by the way, if you make a commitment to Christ, expect times to get hard pretty quick. Satan doesn't like, he doesn't like you to start with. I mean, I don't want to break it to you. He's not a fan of you anyway, but he really doesn't like you now. So when temptation comes, fall away. They have no root. They're not grounded. Verse 14. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. 
Now, if you notice, these are apparently the ones who stick around. They don't just leave the church. They just stay in it, but they don't actually grow in their walk with Christ. They don't bear any fruit. They're just always distracted by either discouraging things or encouraging things or stresses or pleasures or whatever else is always the most important thing. And so while they can maintain their profession, there's no growth to maturity and they bear no fruit. Okay. So notice that each one is sequentially a little closer and a little closer to better, but they're all out. But then you come to verse 15. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good, what? Heart. Notice good ground is equivalent to a good heart. Keep it and bear fruit with patience. Okay? So again, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, and good ground represents a good heart. Now there's some important things I want you to notice about this parable. First of all, the seed is the same for every individual represented. He sows the exact same word. Whether it's thorny ground, or rocky ground, or, or good ground, it's always the same seed, and the seed is the word of God. So it's not like he's saying some people were reached with the word and other people were reached with, no, 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 no. There's one active agent, the seed is the same, and it's always the word of God. Another thing I want you to notice, apparently the technique of sowing that seed is the same for every person. It doesn't say, and some he threw over his shoulder, and some he threw sidearm, and some he, no, no, no. The same sower with the same seed and the same technique had different results. So we know it's not the issue with the seed. We know it's not an issue with the sower. We know it's not an issue with the technique. What's the only variable in the success of the crop in the parable? It's the condition of the soil, the condition of the ground, which is a representation of the recipient's heart. Right? The real issue is heart preparation, whether they receive the word or not. Mrs. White puts it this way in Christ's Object Lessons, page 57. The sowers of the seed have a work to do in preparing hearts to receive the gospel. In the ministry of the word, there is too much sermonizing. I know, I'm preaching, I get the irony, okay? But don't think of this as preaching, think of this as teaching. You're welcome. All right. <laughs> In the ministry of the word, there's too much sermonizing and too little of real heart-to-heart -heart work. There is need of personal labor for the souls of the lost. In Christ-like sympathy, we should come close to men individually and seek to awaken their interest in the great things of eternal life. Their hearts may be as hard as the beaten highway and apparently may be a useless effort to present the Savior to them, but while logic may fail to move, an argument be powerless to convince. By the way, we'll pause right there. Have you ever tried to witness to someone and you try to rely on logic? And it's frustrating when you make sense and they don't care. Oh, there's nothing more frustrating than that. Do you see it? Yep. Are you going to keep it? Nope. <laughs> what am I doing here? It's like I'm showing you all the right texts. I'm using all the right arguments. I'm doing it all. Logic may fail to move, an argument be powerless to convince, but the love of Christ revealed how? In personal ministry, 
It's not just a fleeting feeling or a hope that he's quietly working on their hearts. No, you have to reveal it in work. May soften the stony heart so that the seed of truth can take root. Okay? That before we sow the seed, there is a necessity of working the soil so the seed can land in good ground. Does that make sense? Okay? So before we go out sowing, and we usually might think, well, I've got to go sow the seed. No, you don't. Yet. You've got to do a work in preparing the soil to receive that seed so that you'll have better success. By the way, let's just pause right here. This is where, um, let's, let's make it intensely practical. By the way, this five-step cycle, the evangelistic cycle, works both for individuals in your own personal witness and also corporately in a church body. Okay? Think about this. Every church, and we're going to be talking about church work, especially tomorrow, and individuals work in it, but every church, well, let's start with every individual wants to win souls for Christ. If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you want to bring someone else to the Savior. That's just how that works. If you don't, you're not following Jesus. Let's just say it like it is. And every church is made up of individuals who want the same things. We all want to see souls won for Christ. His kingdom to grow and the church to go forward. Now, every individual should look at our work for other individuals in the same way. I should always be preparing the soil of the heart. Everything I should do should be an entering wedge, plowing the soil, softening the ground, so that when the opportune moment comes and I can plant that word of truth, that seed of scripture, the word of God, it will hit good soil. We don't want to walk around in a careless, callous, obnoxious, distance way, packing down the soil and then hand them a glow track. That's no good. It misrepresents the truth we're trying to convey. We should show it before we share it. Right? Now, I want to be clear. We do need to move to sharing it. Sometimes we get all stuck in the showing it. There's nothing wrong with tilling the ground. But what's the purpose of tilling the ground? To sow seed. Oftentimes, we get hung up on step number one. We just want to do Outreach, for the sake of outreach, is showing the love, which is good. So we'll plow the soil of the heart, get it all nice and soft. And when they're eager for seed, we go back and plow again. <laughs> and we just always plow in the field. The purpose of plowing is planting. Amen? Right? So the purpose of preparing the soil is to sow seed. But we don't want to skip step one, but we don't get it stuck on step one either, Right? We have to logically flow right through all the agricultural or evangelistic cycle, okay? Which brings us to step two. The second step in the evangelism cycle is to sow the seed of truth. After building friendship and trust, we should test the soil by planting seeds of truth. This is the time to share religious literature, media, or our personal testimony, okay? Now, again, I was going to say, let me back up. I was going to talk about the corporate way in the church, the calendar of the church, the structure of the church should be built around this cycle. All right, I have, to, I have to get a few things off my chest for just a moment. Friends, let me tell you, evangelism is not an event. It is a process. You ask most church members, does your church do evangelism? And they'll say, yes, we did it last fall. <laughs> right? And what they mean is, we put up a banner... 
we held an event, we hired a guy to preach, and we as the church members funded it and prayed for his success. Thus, they can say in past tense, we did evangelism. When in reality, Christ lived a life of evangelism where he was always preparing the soil, sowing the seed, cultivating the crop, and harvesting with appeals, right? And training disciple followers of Jesus Christ, right? It was a full cycle. So imagine if your local church would operate around this premise. That you're not just doing, say, a health expo for the sake of getting blood pressures. Though it's good, you know, you might screen somebody and they might have a problem and it's good to get them help, and we need to do that because they just need the help. But then we should have the next thing ready to give them when the soil's ready to go, right? And then we should have people ready to give Bible studies, and then you should have a harvest event at the end, and then you should have a discipleship process to follow up. This should be the DNA of the local church, as it should be the DNA of the local member. Okay? The second step in the evangelism cycle is to sow the seed of truth. After building friendship and trust, we should test the soil by planting seeds of truth. This is the time to share religious literature, media, and or our personal testimony. Soil samples. This is fun. How do you know when someone's heart is prepared to receive or they're eager or open to deeper spiritual conversation, to make that transition from the secular to the spiritual? Well, there's several ways you could do it. You could just straight out ask them, would you like to study the Bible with me? And it might work. That's good. No problem with that. But what might be a little bit better, though I don't want to discourage that at all, I tell you, I have had plenty of success just asking people straight out, hey, would you like to study the Bible with me sometime? And sometimes you're like, no. But every now and then you're like, yeah, okay. Cool, that was easy. It's great. But if you're in a growing friendship and you're deepening and you always want to go deeper, you can test the soil. You can drop little things into conversation. Don't just say last weekend or even just say, you know, at church the other day. Even that's fine. If you're completely secular, you just start mentioning that you go to church. Not in a preachy, like, hey, you should go to church too, but just sharing. I, you know, I was at church. And don't just say, like, last weekend. Say last Sabbath. And just walk away from it. <laughs> oh, I was at church this Sabbath and the guy was talking. It was really fascinating. They were like, did you say, oh, thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Right? Just because if they don't care, they're not going to follow up and ask. But if you say something that scratches them a little, like, oh, yeah, I, I should have mentioned, I actually go to church on the, on the Saturday, on the seventh day of the week. Why? I'm so glad you asked. The, <laughs> the thing is, the, we, we actually just follow, we're, we're crazy enough, just whatever the Bible says, we go with it. And, and from Genesis to Revelation, and you just give them on the spot, your personal testament, why you keep the seventh-day Sabbath, or just a brief overview, and that's it. And you can do the same thing with the state of the dead and the second coming and the sanctuary, whatever. Or mention, like, you know, in my personal devotions this morning, I was reading, and it just reminded me, of, and it's going to make an impression. And you're going to lay the ground. Either they're going to directly ask you then, or they're going to lay the foundation that you're a spiritual person. And when a crisis hits, they can turn to someone they trust. You're building friendships to go deeper. This is the time to share religious literature. And it's like, for instance, Anna, I'm so sorry to hear about your nephew's recent death. Yeah, I know. I, and the thing is, why would God 
He was so young. Why would God, I mean, where is God in all this? Friends, they're ripe. It's not time to be preaching to, well, let me tell you one thing. He's not in heaven. Don't. But you will get there. Because let me tell you something, that will bring them a lot of peace. Because I guarantee if they weren't living close to the Lord, they've got a very bad idea of where that nephew is. But start where they are and share, here's something that's always brought me comfort. Let me share it to you from the Word. And they'll build, you a person of trust and consistency that in times of difficulty I can reach. If you want to say, you know, we just had this, uh, this series about the great controversy, which is the battle between good and evil, and it addressed the very questions you're asking. Here, let me share that with you. Or I can tell you from my own experience what I went through, and they're ready to hear it. Okay? Sowing the seed, step two. I love this passage from Ecclesiastes. And you'll, by the way, you start looking for it, and you'll notice that this agricultural motif is spread throughout all the Bible. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. That's a fascinating statement. It's talking about, in an agricultural sense, but of course it's looking for the deeper spiritual meaning, that if you spend your time always preparing the soil, but you never get around to sowing seed, and it's because, well, it's too windy today, or the clouds are not just right. I'm just waiting for the climate and the atmosphere, the meteorological issues to be just so, so that you're never going to sow the seed. If you're waiting for the moment to be just right, it's never going to happen. At some point, you have to just step out in faith and share the word of God. At some point, you have to open your mouth. In the morning, sow your seed. And in the evening, do not withhold your hand. I love this reasoning. For you do not know which will prosper. You notice in this parable, the sower... He could probably look and say, you know, not much is going to come out of that thorny ground, but you know what? Let's sow some seed anyway. You don't know. It just might work. You don't know. You do not know which will prosper, either this one or that, or whether both alike will be good. You ever go out knocking on doors? <laughs> you look at the house from the outside and you're like, ah, oh, this is a low um, expectation household, I can tell you already. You know, I'm not being trying to be judgmental, but I am inspecting the fruit, you know. And all of a sudden, but you don't know. They might say, yeah, that's great. I'd love to study the Bible with you. Well, praise the Lord. I didn't see that coming. I thought this was stony ground. My bad. <laughs> you, you don't tell them that. <laughs> it's like, you would have never guessed what I thought about. No, don't do that. <laughs> right? But try anyway. The worst that can happen is it doesn't work. But the best that can happen is they're hungry for the word of God. Okay? Isaiah 32 echoes the same thought. Blessed are you who sow beside what? All waters. Who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. Set them loose. Mrs. White talks about spreading literature like the leaves of autumn. Just go for it. Now we can, we can increase the odds by having that good friendship and building all those bridges and stuff. But if you don't have that at all, I'd rather you share than not. Okay, so sow beside all waters. Testimonies for the Church, volume 7, page 35. You are to sow the seeds of truth in every place. Wherever you can gain access, hold forth the word of God. Sow beside all waters. You may not at once see the result of your labors, but be not discouraged. Speak the words that Christ gives you. Work in his lines. 
go forth everywhere as he did during his ministry on earth. Notice the last sentence. The world's redeemer had many hearers, but few followers. Do you ever think about that? Jesus talked to a lot more people than ended up following him. Remember in John chapter 6, he feeds the great multitude. It's miraculous. It's wonderful. They praise his name. They want to make him king. And he exits through the boat, crosses to the other side of the lake, and the next morning they're hunting him down. Why? Because they want seconds. And that's where Jesus says, no bread for you today. In fact, that's where Jesus makes that great declaration. I am the bread of life. He transitions from the physical to the spiritual. And he had met all of their needs, had done everything right, charmed them to the fact that they wanted to make him king, but when he transitioned to spiritual, they're like, no thanks. John chapter 6, verse 66. It's an easy one to remember. From that time on, many followed him no longer. Because they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? You mean there's no bread? No. But there's me. Yeah. It, got to, it got so bad that Jesus had to turn around to his twelve that he then he turned to the twelve and said, are you leaving too? And I love their answer, like, where else can we go? You're the only one that has the word of truth, right? They were hungry for it, but everybody else wasn't. But he had done all the, like, practical thing. He'd had the big health expo the day before. Did... Just nobody wanted it. But praise the Lord, he didn't get discouraged and stop his ministry. He moved on and became the savior of the world. This is mine. This is not inspired this is not a quote from any biblical or spirit of prophecy reference. Too many people, but I believe it's true, too many people make the mistake of not sowing the seed of truth because they're afraid they'll do it poorly. While we never want to approach someone with Bible truth in a careless manner, we don't want to be callous, we don't want to be obnoxious, we don't want to be rude, we far too often go to the opposite extreme of being so cautious that we never actually sow the seed. We're unclear when we try to do it. We're like, I think, would you like to, I don't, maybe kind of, like, huh? <laughs> right? We have no confidence. We have no expectation that they're actually going to say yes. In fact, it's been my experience leading door-to-door outreach groups and things that I'm convinced that most people are not afraid of rejection. I think most people are expecting rejection and kind of look forward to it because then they can have an excuse to say, see, it doesn't work. They knock on the door. Hi, we'd like to offer you, get out of here, boom. They're like, oh, I was wounded for Christ. <laughs> right? Now I've got a testimony. Now I've got a scar to share. And I'm going to go home and say I gave it my best. And you know, martyr for the cause. Now I know it's not my gift. <laughs> Friends, don't even let me start with the abomination that the spiritual gifts mentality has done to our church. Mark Finley said at the absolute best, nowhere in the Bible do you find witnessing to be a spiritual gift. It's standard equipment for any Christian. Okay? There's not like, oh, no, no, you're good at witnessing. No, no. We're all supposed to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. We're all supposed to sow besides all waters. Anyway, but what would happen if that same person, they knock on the door, Hi, I was wondering, I was with this group, and I was wondering if you'd like to study the Bible. And they said, praise the Lord, yes! I've been waiting, I've been praying, I've been studying, I don't know what I'm looking at, I need someone to help me. Can you start right now? 
no. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't expecting it. They had no expectation that someone would ever say yes, and they convey that lack of conviction in the inquiry. How, would you like to study the... Uh, no? You don't even want to study the Bible with me, you know? <laughs> right? We have no confidence that anyone would be interested. We project that in the inquiry. They reject it, and we said, see, there you go. No. Now, you might mess up and do it badly. What brings it to this point? It's better to risk failure because of a poor approach than to guarantee failure by making no approach at all. I'd much rather fail trying. Because if you go out and knock on 100 doors and 99 say no, you know what you come back with? One who said yes. If you don't go out, they all said no. Get off my soapbox. We'll keep going now. The third step in the evangelism cycle is to cultivate that interest through Bible study. When someone responds positively to spiritual seed, that interest needs to be cultivated by the Word of God. Okay? They, they say, yes, I'm interested. You're speaking. You're, what you're saying to me is very curious. I, yeah, I'd be open to studying with you. Great. Then you actually have to follow through and study the Word of God. This is best accomplished through weekly personal Bible studies. And the Seventh Adventist Church is replete, ubiquitous Bible study guides all over the place. It is written, amazing facts, you know, Voice of Prophecy, uh, uh, Prophecies of Hope by Gary Gibson. I mean, there's, there's great ones out there. And all you need to do is set up an appointment and say, great, well, how about Tuesday at, at 5 p.m. or whatever? Find something that works with your schedule, works with their schedule, and start and just walk through them. In fact, here's an even easier thing. You could even host a DVD watching night, right? Let somebody else, you know, do the heavy lifting for you. You just like pop the popcorn and push play. But host your own little evangelistic campaign right in your home. Have a small group that meets. Have a, plant a few of your friends there and bring a few of those people to come in. All of a sudden you've got six, seven, eight people. And you're sitting around, hand out the worksheets and stuff. It's very simple. It's doable. Now, what you're going to run into, though, especially if you do one-on-one Bible studies, is that the first Tuesday at 5, there's going to be a soccer practice for their kids that they forgot about. You're like, ah, oh, all right, so let's put it off another week. And then you'll get the first one going. They'll be interested, and it was really cool and everything. But the next week, they got sick, and they don't want you around the house. Oh, okay. So now, and what you're going to notice, it's long, laborious, frustrating, and you'll get to, like, lesson 12 over the course of three months, four months, and they're going to just kind of fade away and they're not returning your phone calls. And... <sighs> this, friends, is where a, a reformation in the Seventh Adventist Church needs to occur. Seed sowing and soil prep. We often, especially corporately in church bodies, will do events that prepare the soil and events that sow the seed. For example, I keep coming back to Health Expo, or you could do a get-out-of-debt seminar, a stop-smoking class, or a cooking class, or something like that. But something that appeals to a physical need that people may have, some sort of uh, uh, felt need. You heard that term a lot, right? And you can do it on a single day. Put up the banners, check the blood pressures, that's it. Then you could have like a glow-a-thon. You ever heard? You should do that with your church challenge. See, how many glow, glow tracks can we hand out in a month? Go nuts with it. Have fun. You know, the winner gets, I don't know, 
a, a Bible study. <laughs> I don't know. But those are event-based. You can do them like in a day or a week or a small, quick thing. But if someone actually comes to the health event, is open to Bible truth and says, yes, I'd like to study more, that's when the real work begins. It's that long slog of meeting them and they're going to have habit. Their house is going to smell. They're going to smoke. Their kids are going to be rude. Their pets are going to be gross. They're going to drop the schedule. Who did Jesus spend his time with? Those type of people. We feel good. Oh, yeah, we had a health expo. But did you win a soul? No, that's work. It's long, slow, sweaty, messy work. And it's the greatest need in the Seventh-day Adventist church today. Of individual members willing to take the word of God and share it with those in need. Peter talks about the growth that happens for new Christians, and it comes directly from the Word of God. He says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of what? The Word, that you may grow thereby. So they might have an interest, they might have a conviction, they might have one truth, but then you study the rest of it. You see Bible prophecy, you see end-time events, you see Jesus as the Lamb in the sanctuary process, and their eyes begin to open, and their hearts begin to melt, and their starting to make changes in their life, and you grow not by the interesting messenger, but by the message itself. The word itself has power to convince, convict, and by God's grace, convert lost people. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. You know, every person that joins God's remnant church does so in one of two ways. Either they went to a public evangelistic campaign and studied the Bible in a large group, or they had personal Bible studies with someone and studied the Bible in a small group. That's it. Everyone goes through a course of Bible study to understand what the Bible teaches to be part of God's end-time movement. It's going to have to happen. That's how growth happens. We see this in Acts chapter 8. So Philip ran to him. This, of course, is Philip, one of those seven deacons. Acts chapter 7 is where Stephen was martyred as a deacon, and Acts chapter 6 is where Philip and Stephen were set apart as those earliest leaders. And in Acts chapter 8, after the death, I love that after the death and martyrdom of Stephen, Philip is sent out. It's like, all right, you're next. And he, he agrees. Philip ran to him, this is the Ethiopian eunuch, and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? There are plenty of people who are professedly Christian, Bible-believing followers, they think, but don't know what they're looking at. They don't understand the Word of God. They might be culturally Christian. They might grow up in a Christian home or be, have their names on the book of the... But they don't really know, and they don't have that deep personal experience. And this is what this man was having. Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? Friends, 2,000 years later, this is still the cry of so many people. I would love to know the Bible more, but I need somebody to guide me. I love it. Then Philip opened his mouth. Here am I. I. I love that he didn't say it. Philip opened his mouth and said unto him, wait, let me go get my pastor. <laughs> he opened his own mouth. And beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. It's a powerful story. In Evangelism, page 338, 
again, as a pastor, hits me upside the head. It is not preaching alone that must be done. Far less preaching is needed. More time should be devoted to patiently educating others, giving the hearers opportunity to express themselves. This is an important point. You're not going there just to put on a lecture. You're there to study together. And some objections, some questions, concerns, confusions might be in their mind, and that one-on-one or small group environment is the perfect place for them to express themselves. They may have never understood that Jesus' coming is visible, literal, audible, and universal. They thought it was a secret rapture. That's gonna, they're going to have to unlearn some things and express what I thought and this. Or the same thing is true about the truth about hell. Or the sanctuary. Or, I mean, you name the thing. They're going to have questions. They should have the opportunity to express themselves. It is instruction that many need. Line upon line, precept upon precept. Here a little and there a little. They're going to grow through study of the word of God. Again, this nurturing work is by far the most time-consuming, labor-intensive, and potentially disappointing phase of the growing cycle. Where soil preparation and seed sowing may take a day or two, cultivation requires continued effort over weeks or months. It's the truth in the agricultural cycle too, right? If you have a garden plot, you can get the tiller out and do all the prep work in one day. You can sow the seed in one day, but looking for growth and then watering and then weeding and tending to, that takes forever. This is the greatest need in soul winning today. Individuals willing to do the hard work of heart-to-heart individual labor. The fourth step in the evangelism cycle is harvesting the crop by decisions for baptism. After cultivating the interest with Bible studies, it is time to lead those embracing the truth to make decisions for baptism. Remember Peter in Acts chapter 2? He preaches this Bible-based, truth-filled, present truth message. I love the fact that Peter didn't just say, Men and brethren, Jesus was born in a manger. Which is true, but that wasn't the cutting present truth that they needed to hear. They needed to hear that 50 days ago you killed your Messiah. And he preaches that message to them, convicting message. They were cut to the heart. And then they say, what shall we do? And what is his response? Repent and be baptized. He makes an appeal, an altar call. Surrender to Christ, make a commitment to him. Ratify it with baptism, just as the Bible says. Decisions for Christ are most often made in personal Bible studies or public evangelistic meetings followed by a baptismal preparation class. Just a word on this, by the way. Why would we do a baptismal preparation class? As soon as they declare that they love Jesus, shouldn't they be baptized? No. Because when you join the body of Christ, you're joining a movement of other people and you have a deeper understanding of Bible truth, okay? So that, let's say that, for instance, they've accepted the message of the Sabbath. They know it is on Saturday and not on Sunday. The seventh day, not the first day. And they've seen biblical evidence from Genesis to Revelation that it is true. Okay, they can intellectually agree with it, but then what do they do with their life? You know, it might require a change in job. Or it might result in a change of job, let's say that. 
It might cause some tension at home when the spouse doesn't believe and the kids like hanging out with the one because he's more fun. It, what does it mean? Do I go out to eat on Sabbath? I mean, the commandment says, you're a manservant, you're a maidservant, they get the day off too. You mean that? Ch-? Yes. It's going to be a lot of life application. Then you add on top of Sabbath, tithe. Like, oh yes, in your finances. The Lord requires 10%. It's like, but I've been living on 100%. I know. And generous offerings. And then we're going to get into the health message. Are you telling me crab? Yep. And pork. Yep. I don't know what to eat. <laughs> I don't know. If I've been a vegetarian my whole life. and I still run into people. like It's, it's getting cooler to be vegetarian, so yay. But the... How many times I've run into people like, you don't eat any meat? I'm like, nope. They're like, what do you eat? <laughs> I was like, well, let me get this straight. You have chicken, beef, fish, and pork, right? Now let's list off the vegetables. <laughs> you know, let's list off all the fruit and the nuts, the grains, legumes. What? You're the one with the limited, but everybody, you got to have me? What if you say, no, that you're done with that now? They don't know how to cook. So you're like, you're changing my money. You're changing my food. You're changing my schedule. You're going to get me fired. It's not me, brother. It's the Lord. Right? Can you see that there might be some changes that might need to integrate it in the life before they seal that commitment and say, Lord, I'm yours? Preparation for that commitment because once they committed, they wanted to stay. By the way, if you, and the temptation is to round off the corners. We'll just, shh, we'll just mention tithe later. <laughs> The best case scenario, by the way, if you do that, the best you can hope for is confusion and frustration. The worst case scenario is they're going to think you lied. Don't lie to people. Tell them the truth as it is in Jesus. Psalm 126 speaks about those. Those who sow in tears, notice it's going to be a tearful, difficult process, shall reap in joy. I don't know if you've ever had the occasion of walking someone from faithlessness to faithfulness, but there's nothing in this world like it. Nothing. There's nothing harder than getting them there and nothing happier once they've arrived. Okay? He who continually goes forth, how? Weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. The whole purpose of cultiva- uh, preparing the soil and sowing the seed and cultivating the crop is so you can get to the harvest and make that appeal and watch decisions be made for Jesus Christ. The worst thing you'd want to do in the agricultural cycle is go through all of that toil and effort and sweat and mess and when the crop is finally there, just watch it. Like, look, there it is. And then you don't harvest it. Friends, there are people who are just waiting for an invitation to come to Jesus. But nobody's ever asked. And they're rotting on the vine. I'd rather you ask and fail than guarantee failure, right? The same thing happens when it's time to make that appeal. Just look at them and say, you know when you recognize, we could have a whole seminar on recognizing conviction. It's not always tears of joy. Sometimes it's anger. But you're touching a nerve. Friend, do you understand what the Bible's saying to you tonight? Yeah. 
Do you see that Jesus Christ is inviting you personally to make a stand for him? Yeah. What would keep you from joining tonight? And we're afraid they might say no. And they might. But friends, they might say yes. And that's the most important thing. Review and Herald, April 24, 1883. The salvation of sinners requires earnest personal labor. We are to bear to them the word of life, not to wait for them to come to us. Cannot underscore that enough. With personal piety and a consistent course of life, our earnest, heartfelt appeals will be, through God, as sharp arrows of the Almighty to pierce the sin-hardened heart, as sharp sickles to reap a precious harvest for the heavenly garner. You should make personal appeals. Which brings me to this simple point. Crops never harvest themselves. That would be phenomenal if they would, by the way. Wouldn't it be great if all these orchards out here at just the right time fell down, walked into the truck or whatever? That'd be great. It doesn't happen that way. They'll sit there shiny and ripe and then rot if we don't go get them. That's what's going to happen. But now let's talk about the fifth and final step. The fifth step in the evangelism cycle is preserving new members through a practical discipleship course, which is exactly why we wrote the Discipleship Handbook. Now, I'm not here to plug this. It's just a resource we brought. But we spend so much time, energy, effort, money, manpower trying to win one soul and bring them to baptism. And then as soon as they're baptized, the whole church says, Amen, and the banners come down. And it goes back to church as usual. And they're like, what happened? Before it was, oh, how you doing, brother? Good to see you. Sister, come on in, come on in. Oh, yeah, we'll study the Bible with you. Yeah, woohoo! Then, what? All of the becoming a member of the body of Christ is going to take time to integrate and soak down in that good soil. Okay? After baptism, new members should be led through a systematic discipleship plan. It is here that the disciple is trained to make other disciples, thus adding to the growth of the church. We do a fantastic job. Well, not even a fantastic job. Let's not lie. Sometimes we do okay at making members, but we're absolutely paltry at making missionaries. The goal of winning a soul to Christ is not to add, add to the church, but to help the church multiply through their efforts as well. To make a self-denying worker for Jesus Christ. Isaiah 55. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Notice the crop that is harvested is supposed to do two things. First of all, be bread to the eater, right? You harvest it and bring it into where you are, make them a member of the church, but also to become what? Seed to the sower. So that crop that you harvest should in turn become a seed sower in itself. Not just bread on the table, but seed in the field. They should not just be members of the church, but they should be missionaries for Jesus Christ. If we have not made missionaries, we have not completed the work of evangelism. It must be full cycle all the way around. John chapter 4, Jesus said it this way, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, 
But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain springing up into everlasting life. Right, so not just do you receive the word and you become a member, but then you become a fountain for others, which is the ultimate goal of evangelism. Let me just tell you, baptism is not the goal. Baptism is an essential step that leads to the goal of being a self-denying, full-fledged member of the body of Christ who wins other souls. Okay? Baptism is a step, but it's not the end. It's not the finish line. Revere and Herald, December 3, 1908. It is an eternal law of Jehovah that he who accepts the truth is to make it his first work to do what? To proclaim the truth. By the way, I don't know if you've ever met anyone, and maybe you're someone here tonight, who is new to the faith. I love those people. Because you can't get them to shut up. Everywhere they go, you know, they're by the water cooler, and somebody's like, how about the game this week? And they're like, forget the game, how about the mark of the beast? Let me tell you, brother, it's coming soon. I just learned. Did you know that the answer, like, shh. In its time, brother, in its time, right? But I'd much rather have that zeal to train than a whole church full of members who can't get them to open their mouth. Again, this is all helpful introduction to tomorrow's message, okay? But who is it that makes the burden of perishing sinners his own? Where are those missionaries? Among God's people today, there is a fearful lack of the sympathy that should be felt for souls unsaved. We talk of Christian missions. The sound of our voice is heard. But do we feel Christ's tender heart longing for those outside the fold? Is it just nomenclature and spiritual garb we put on on the Sabbath hours? Or do we genuinely, in our heart of hearts, in our daily lives, seek to win others to Jesus? I love this one. Christian Service, page 58. It is evident that all the sermons that have been preached have not developed a large class of self-denying workers. Think of all the sermons we've listened to. Think of all the churches we've been part of, all the great events, all the great big orations that have been delivered and That's fine and good and well in its place. But if it doesn't lead people to actually work for Jesus, what good has it done? This subject is to be considered as involving the most serious results. The churches are withering up because they have failed to use their talents in diffusing light. Careful instruction should be given which will be as lessons from the Master that all may put their light to practical use. And this is my words now. It is little wonder the retention rates of newly baptized church members are so poor. If the excitement of a public campaign fades and the truth has only been accepted in theory but not in practice, what else should we expect? We lament that half the people we baptize stay. I mean, only half stay. I'm surprised that even half stay. Now, the Lord has been kind and the Lord has been gracious, but I think he expects more and he wants to do more through his people than we are currently doing. We need to embrace the full cycle of evangelism, both individually and corporately, to grow believers in the word, making them genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. Again, I'm not going to have a particular appeal right now, but I will tell you when, not if, but when you come back tomorrow morning, 
I want to make an appeal, and it's going to be along these lines. I'm just preparing the soil. Okay. But I want you to think about what we're talking about here. Jesus Christ expects the whole world to witness the spreading of the gospel. And he wants to do it through us. We can give money to the cause, we can pray for the other people who are doing it, but nothing, nothing compares to individual personal labor for souls who are lost. Let me ask you a question. I've asked it over and over. Has tonight's presentation made sense? Was it clear? Praise the Lord. But I hope that we're settling in past convincing that something's stirring the heart that's convicting, saying, you know what? I should be doing something more. Maybe I need help in the uh, soil prep phase. Maybe I should be a better uh, practical ministry person. I should be more self-sacrificing, benevolent, good. Or maybe I'm great at that stuff, but I'm so timid to like share a nice book or a DVD or my own story or a glow tract or whatever the thing is. And maybe you're saying, maybe I'm not that good at it. Maybe I need to get training so I can be better at it. There's no problem. But you're feeling the Lord saying in your heart, I need to do something more than I'm already doing. And maybe you're great at handing out literature and blah, 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 but maybe you're terrible at follow through. Many groups talk a big talk and to have great outreach programs and get, hey, we got 50 Bible study interests, great. That means we need 50 people to follow up on them. And maybe that's where we fall down. Maybe the Lord is convicting you. I want to give at least a couple hours of each week to giving a Bible study for Jesus. Or maybe you're great at that, but you just get to the end, you're like, don't have the courage to actually ask for that commitment, to make that appeal. Say, Lord, I need the courage to go from convincing to convicting, and then watch you do the converting. Or maybe you say, you know, we've got a whole bunch of new members in our church and they don't know what they're doing. Or maybe I don't really know what I'm doing and I want to I want to help them. I want to mentor new people. But somewhere, God wants you to work in this process in your local church and the complete process in your own life. That's the goal. That's the mission. And tomorrow we'll be presenting a message and we'll be making an appeal. And I want to let you prepare the heart now so that when the appeal is made, you can say yes to something Jesus is asking you. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much tonight that you, in your infinite, mind-boggling wisdom, want to use us as your servants. Lord, teach us how to work better for you. Lord, some of us here might not have any burden for the lost at all, and I would ask that you send the Holy Spirit right now to start working on their heart. And some of us might have a burden, but we're not sure what to do, or afraid of doing it the wrong way, or maybe just afraid of doing it at all. And Lord, I would ask you to Give us whatever tools we need, whether it's conviction, maybe it's courage, maybe it's training, maybe it's resources, but whatever it is we need, Lord, give us what we need so that we can step forward and make your name glorified. For Lord, we want to see Jesus come, and we want to see soon be sooner. So use us to your glory, Lord, and hasten your soon coming. For we pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.